our presenters tonight is a couple, Susan and Paolo Carozza, um, and a brief bio on them. They've been married for over 26 years and have five children, um, ranging in age from 23 to 7. Susan is a middle school teacher um, teaching religion at St. Pius X School in Granger, um, and Paolo is a law professor at Notre Dame. He is also the director of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies at Notre Dame, and uh, was recently appointed to by Pope Francis to the Pontifical Academy for Social Sciences. Um, and they lead a local um, uh, community of the Catholic ecclesial, ecclesial movement, communion and liberation, um, of mostly Notre Dame students, I think. Um, so without further ado, please welcome Susan and Palacroza speaking on things I wish I had known as a young adult. No? Yes, there we go. Now it, now it is. Okay, so um, I have some notes out here. Um, so we have a, here, I'll put these down here. Okay, so um, we have a little list for you that we prepared uh, of top 10 things that we wish we had known when we were young adults. Um, and so I'll, I'll do five of them, and Susan will do five of them, and we'll alternate, and then there'll be some time for questions and stuff afterwards. So I, I prepared these handy little signs for you so you know where we are. All right, so this is, the first one is, uh, which is number 10. We'll do a countdown. Number 10 is, I want it all, okay? Uh, so um, let me start with an example uh, from when, when I was a, a young adult. When we were married, um, I better start this timer too because otherwise I'm going to go talk way too long. <laughs> See? See, Susan has all of her notes written out, and I have none of mine written out. This is called complementarity. That's what the church means. Let me talk about complementarity. Okay. Um, so um, so when I, when I, after we were married, um, you know, we got married, we, we were very active in the church right from the start. Um, it's one of the reasons we fell in love and got married with one another, frankly, and is, was that attraction. And so we tried really hard very early in our marriage, our professional lives, to be very active in the church. We'd, you know, started prayer groups, and we'd do stuff at the parish, and, uh, and we'd go on retreats with one another, and so forth. It was great. Um, but there was this sort of nagging problem or feeling uh, that I had um, that, um, uh, that I, I had to give up things that I really wanted in life. Um, you know, it started when after law school, like, I didn't quite get the job that I wanted and I thought that I was going to have, and that's what I saw as my, as my future. And then the hours that I had to work and I couldn't see my family and we, and we started, you know, things started to accumulate. Time, um, children, demands on energy and, and everything you have. And, and before long, you know, it was, it was implicitly a feeling like um, uh, I had to reduce the desire for happiness that I had in the world. And I had to give, give up that, you know, sort of that, the totality of it. The thing that I had, that when I was younger, I sort of felt like, I'm going I'm to have everything in the world. I'm going to be happy, right? And then after a while, you find yourself as a young adult with everything sort of paring back on it. And, uh, and, and before long, the risk is, well, I, I just have to settle for what I can get, right? Uh, it may be success in some measure in my career. Or it might be some other kind of happiness. Um, but I, but I, can't, I can't really have it all. And in fact, you often hear, you can't have it all, you have to make sacrifices, right? And while it's true that you have to make sacrifices, the desire for happiness that you have does in fact have an answer in its totality, everything, right? And that's what I didn't know uh, and didn't realize. It took me a long time to realize that um, the hope for a complete fulfillment of my life, for, for happiness, wasn't just this youthful, unrealistic utopia, um, but, but that, in fact, um, it's, it's, uh, there is an answer to the desire. The desire that you have in your heart, of course, doesn't go away despite all those things. Um, what ends up happening often is that, um, you know, it's that, that hardwired desire for, for complete happiness and fulfillment of your life that you have ends up 
being expressed in other ways, right? Either you try to suppress it, uh, you anesthetize it through distractions, uh, through whatever, alcohol or the internet, or, uh, or you resent the fact that your life places constraints on you and somehow seems to be some contradicting this desire for a, for a complete happiness, and you get kind of cynical about it. And so it took me a while that, to realize that I don't have to settle for less than everything that my heart desires. And, and I don't have to reduce that desire and settle for conventionally what the world tells me this should be good enough for you. Right? Because there is an answer to what my heart is actually yearning for. And it's not just illusion and it's not just a utopia. And, and without keeping that desire alive, in fact, and feeding it and being aware of it, in fact, you can't really encounter Christ and live with Christ. Because what he presents himself to us as is, is the answer to that fundamental desire of our human hearts. And so if you don't live it, if you don't accept it, embrace it, nurture it, if you settle for less than everything that your heart really yearns for, you won't be open to everything that Christ has to offer to you. So that's, that's number 10. You want me to read all these? Sure. All right, number nine. I won't read them. I'll just hold it up. <laughs> all right. Well, I, I told my seventh graders that I was going to be with you tonight, and I asked them all to pray over me today, that I would not be nervous. But then I told them I would hope that I would see them on Thursday if I just didn't die of nervousness up here. <laughs> so hopefully their prayers are going to carry me through. So my first one is you first, please. Um, and it's about finding good role models to imitate. Uh, I didn't think about choosing uh, role models to follow, except when I was seeking confirmation back in high school. Uh, but then when I was in my late 20s and we had our first child, I realized I had absolutely no idea what to do. At that time, parenting books were being pushed as the way to figure out how to raise your children just right. Uh, some of these were by expert child psychologists. Some of them were by physicians. There were some dueling books by supermoms. And instead of feeling pressured to do research comprehensively and discover who has best practices for raising kids, I looked around me and I asked, who was a loving, thoughtful mother? Who could be patient in the most trying of situations? Better yet, who was raising kids I enjoyed being with? <laughs> and so I set my sights on my sister-in-law, Paolo's sister, and I watched her. And I hung out with her, and I talked with her, and I asked her advice. And she was always a few steps ahead of me, so when something new came up for me, she had usually given it thought or had experience with it. So learning this way as opposed to in a book, it takes time. Uh, but it's also been very fruitful. Uh, I've learned to recognize virtue and wisdom in another person. Um, I've developed a deep and abiding sisterhood with my sister-in-law. And I've shared my life with her in such a way that she knows me and I really know her. So with this experience, I learned an important lesson. I can look for role models in my life. And that's the point I want to make for you, because at least half of you are not going to be wondering how to be a good mother, right? The male half of you. <laughs> so I look around, and I think, who has a good work-life balance? I haven't found that person yet, but I'm looking. <laughs> Whose faith is growing, and how is it that their faith is still growing? Whose faith is expressed well in stewardship? Do I know someone who tithes? How are they doing that? Who can look at other people with eyes of love, always seeing their positives, even if they know their negatives? There I found Father Bill Schooler. So if you know him, you know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so these are some of the things I'm trying to learn now uh, from good role models. 
So I would ask you, who could you learn from who's around you? Okay. All right. Uh, number eight, Susan, don't look at the sign, please. Okay. Um, now, let me just clarify right away what I mean by that, because it is not the case that uh, I wish I knew that, uh, you know, that I would regret 26 years of marriage, then no, that's not it. Um, but that uh, the emphasis on the title there is, is the for me, right? Uh, marriage is not for me, or one might say it's not about me, um, it's about her. Um, and, I, and I want to use this as something that I wish I had known really about intimate relationships more generally, not just our marriage, but that primarily, but really the close friendships I have, the relationship I have to my children, um, all those relationships uh, of love, uh, we go into them, you know, I mean, necessarily in some ways seeking self-affirmation, seeking completeness of ourselves, looking for the things that correspond to us, that make us happy, that please us, right? Um, looking for what satisfies me. What do you do when you're looking for a spouse, you're choosing a spouse? You want someone who satisfies you, right? But in some way, um, the reality is that paradoxically, um, what, I, what I've learned over the years is that those relationships that I go into seeking my own self-affirmation and self-satisfaction, paradoxically, don't lead to that. I mean, it's, it's backwards, in other words. Um, because it is a way of reducing relationships with these other people who you're closest to, to a kind of selfishness, frankly, to a kind of um, you know, reciprocity. I'll love you because you give something to me, because I get something from you that satisfies me, that makes me happy, that corresponds to me, that I like. There's almost a contractual nature to it. You know, I'm a lawyer, so. Um, and, uh, and the sacrifice of Christ instead reveals to us that the paradox has to be reversed. Right? It's only, you know, it, it, or I guess put a different way, the, the sacrifice of Christ reveals to us the hidden dynamic of self-gift, the gift of oneself to another. And that it's only in living for another, right, not for me, that I discover the meaning of who I am and the fulfillment of my life, right? If I don't do that first, then I don't know really what I'm about. So I have to seek a relationship for her sake. So marriage is not for me, it's for her. Now, of course, the wonderful thing about the truth of that hidden you know, rule of existence that Christ has revealed to us is that by being for her, ultimately it's for me in a way that I could never have imagined. It goes far beyond my mere self-satisfaction and self-affirmation, right? Um, it's, uh, it, it is something that I never really could have imagined. So what I wish I had known is really to understand that I have to seek first the destiny and fulfillment and, happy, and happiness of my wife, my friend, my children, right? And there I begin to find my own. In giving myself to someone else's happiness and someone else's destiny, you discover who you really are. All right. Number seven. Right. <clears throat> well, I'm an authentic, homegrown square. I have always been a square. I've always been sure. rule. Maybe you guys don't say square. <laughs> Maybe I don't type a rule follower. Okay. All right. I'm 52. We call them squares. Um, I've always had a strong sense of what was morally right and what's morally wrong. I've also always been immersed in the life of the church and have sought to understand all her doctrines. I would even say that the truth is very evident to me 
and that all the potential consequences of following the truth or not following the truth seem abundantly clear before I even do anything. So what I didn't understand before, that I understand better now, is that there are loving and effective ways to witness to the truth, but they do not include marching into a situation so confident, so self-assured, or so passionate about what is right and wrong that I don't see the other person in front of me. So I'm gonna give you two examples of when I went wrong. <clears throat> One is when I went to visit my brother and his wife and I finally met their little baby, um, I noticed that they were sniping at each other all day long, all weekend long. The smallest things they were criticizing about each other. And so being a very helpful big sister, <laughs> before leaving, I sat them down and I talked to both of them about what kind of household their baby would grow up in if this is how they treated each other. So I was very careful to give one dishwasher example from my brother and one um, have to stop at the store but you can't go to the bathroom example from my sister-in-law. So not huge things, right? So I thought that this intervention would be really helpful to them, really enlightening. But they didn't speak to me for years after. I'm not kidding. So I didn't mean to, but somehow what I said and the way I said it, I didn't recognize their dignity. What I said was true, but it wasn't right. So another example was from a retreat planning team <clears throat> I was on. One woman had rehearsed her talk for the team and I was underwhelmed. I didn't think she was addressing the topic. I didn't think she was speaking clearly. I thought she was kind of so I don't remember what suggestions I made. I'm sure they were measured and carefully worded because that's kind of how I go. But they were probably pretty far reaching. She told me later she knew I was disappointed in her. So I had wounded her with my suggestions. They were true, but they were not right. So when I was younger, I wish I had looked more closely at Christ and how he speaks truth, but he speaks it in a way that recognizes the dignity of the person in front of him. And I think the key is, and this is what I'm going to stick to, his patient strength in difficult situations or at times when other people let him down. So I have to teach this beatitude to my kids at school. Uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And they think it means being a doormat. You know, blessed are you if you're a doormat and everybody stomps all over you. Maybe you guys don't say doormat either. <laughs> <laughs> so, blessed are the meek. And I tell them, no, if we look at Christ, we see it's a patient strength. That meekness is steadfastness. It's a generosity of spirit. It's a willingness to walk patiently down a long, hard road with someone or for someone. So I wish before I had tried to witness to the truth when I felt there were misunderstandings or somebody was making a mistake with a greater generosity of spirit, with a gentleness with an undiminished openness to that other person. I think then the truth would have been an encounter with Christ. Okay, uh, number six. This is a little bit, let's get, you, do, I, do I need to read it? Because it's kind of hard to see in the back. Yes, okay, number six, the attractiveness of morality is what I've called it. So, um, like probably like a lot of you, uh, maybe not, I don't know, 
Uh, see, I wasn't such a square. Um, uh, and, so, and so when I was younger, um, I saw the moral life and the precepts of morality as taught by the church as like a real drag, okay? Um, uh, as a constraint on my freedom. It was an obstacle, right, uh, to doing the things that I wanted to do a lot of times. Um, and uh, it was about being good and avoiding sin. And, uh, well, because you're supposed to be good and you're supposed to avoid sin, right? And nothing wrong with that. So I wasn't objecting in principle to the, the idea of wanting to be good and wanting to avoid sin. But, boy, it, w- it was kind of hard sometimes, right? Um, and not something that I can say, I, you know, that I desired in, in a way. Because just thinking of it as being good and avoiding evil wasn't enough for me to understand what these, these guidelines for my life were really about, right? I didn't understand that living a moral life is about being true to who you are and how you're made and what you're meant for. And therefore, that you know, this, the rules that the church has about our moral life are nothing other than you know, the distillation of experience about what leads to our happiness. And that that's what the moral life is really about. That's what's attractive about it, is that it leads to our fulfillment and our happiness in a way. It's not a constraint on our happiness and freedom. It's just exactly the opposite, right? It's about our fulfillment, not against us. Now, we have to be honest. A lot of times it's not seen that way, right? And not, and not felt that way. Not, you don't experience it that way. You experience it as a certain kind of something that's against us. Okay? Um, so I don't want to suggest that it's easy. But uh, especially in a culture where any kind of constraint on our choices, on our immediate satisfactions, is seen as somehow wrong, inhuman, unjust, a denial of you know, what we're supposed to be like. Right? Um, but... And so sometimes it can be really hard to see this truth in a moral rule, a moral precept, a moral guideline. In order to see it, one has to have faith in the moral teaching of the church and then seek understanding, right? Seek understanding of it through, in particular, participating in it. There's sort of the paradox is you can't understand the beauty and attractiveness of the moral life until you begin to try to live it. However imperfectly, however inconsistently, however haltingly and failingly we do, but at least a desire to, then you begin to understand. I'll give you a very, you know, very salient example, you know, maybe too personal, but uh, it's, it's just uh, you know, the reality of how I learned this. Um, and, that, and that is through our uh, trying to come to terms with the church, church's teaching on contraception in our marriage. And it was hard. Like, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't deny the truth of what the church is teaching, okay? I could affirm it at an intellectual level, but living it and living it as an attractive thing that was enhancing my freedom and satisfaction and happiness, whoo, that was tough, you know? Um, But it was only in time, begging for an understanding, facing it with faith, sharing it, and living it that I can say, boy, I wish I knew from the beginning how fulfilling that was actually for our happiness, how much it led to, you know, enhance the kind of relationship that we have, the capacity to be open and loving and patient and, and understanding with one another and, and completely giving of, one, of, each, of each other to the other, right? So it's only in time that, that the attractiveness of what at first seemed to be a kind of negative constraint that I had to put up with just to avoid sin, right, uh, became something that was really quite beautiful and attractive, and now I wouldn't want any other way. So number five, I'll read out. Biking, baking, and begging. (laughs) So I wanted to talk with you a little bit about stress. I don't know, that's a word you use, stress? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, um, so stress can be a really debilitating factor in our lives, and it can lead to physical health problems, mental health problems. It can bring out the worst version of ourselves, and this is important to us if we want to love and affirm and serve other people. 
So we need to figure out this stress piece for our own well-being, but also if we're going to follow Christ and be able to love other people in Christ's name. So as a young adult, I wish I had developed better mechanisms to tame stress. I did go to the gym a lot when I was in graduate school. I'd have to swim from 9.30 to 10.30 every night, or I could not sleep. Um, but I, now I realize that physical activity is only one approach to uh, reducing the effects of stress. And that's because we're complex beings. Uh, we're made up of spiritual, physical, and mental components. And you can't separate, separate out just one and try to address your whole self. Um, so I've learned that I can tackle stress on each of these planes, on the spiritual plane, on the mental plane, on the physical plane. So a couple of examples. When I've seen what has brought a reduction in stress for me, uh, 10 years ago when my father totaled his car again and was arrested on drunk driving charges in California, I was here in South Bend super worried super consumed with worry. That week, I baked 35 loaves of bread. <laughs> I was giving them away to the postal service man who was delivering my mail. Um, so the kneading of the dough, the baking of the bread and how it smelled, the golden crusts, seeing all those beautiful loaves line up on the counter. <laughs> They all helped calm me down. I won't even talk about putting up jars of jam. That's another thing. <laughs> so eight years ago, when I realized I was pregnant again at age 44, so the whole NFP thing works really well, but when you hit 40, read the manual again. There are a few chapters you probably didn't read the first time you need to. Um, so. I hopped on my bike, and I headed into southern Michigan for a long ride all by myself. I had decided the only way I could deal with this, this is really true. Well, no, this is a podcast. I'm not saying it. No. Um, I thought I would give up our daughter for adoption. <laughs> she did say that. I can hear Paola was out of town, and I'm like, how is this ever going to work? So I got on my bike, and I rode my bike, and I rode my bike, and I rode my bike. And the horizon, and the fields, and the quiet, and the trees, they all helped calm me down. So when things get really crazy, then the only relief I find is going to exposition or going to daily mass. Um, that's when I can share my burden with Christ, I feel like most effectively, I can beg him for help, and I can begin to feel peace even in those crazy moments steal back into my heart. So I wish I had known when I was your age that I am not just a bodily being, and so when I feel consumed with stress, not just try to beat it down at the gym. Uh, but that I can also approach it these other ways that I find helpful. And I also wish I had thought of when I was your age that it's so good to see a counselor if things are really stressful. That's kind of like going to somebody at the pro shop to work on your golf swing. Why not go to an, a, a professional about emotions when that's tough? Or go to see a priest for spiritual direction and the grace that he can also offer. So stress can make it difficult to live in Christ's peace and to share his love with others. So I think we need to take it seriously. Okay. All right, number four, called this, faith is not separate from life. Okay. So um, I already mentioned that at the beginning of our, our lives together, um, you know, I mean, we were working really hard. Um, we were trying to live really well in the church at the same time. Uh, we started a family, and we had three kids in pretty short order. So, you know, there was a lot going on. And I couldn't help feeling like it was all in pieces. It was all fragmented, right? 
here was this life in the church that I tried to live, and it had its place, but then there was work, and that was a different thing. And then there was family, and that was a different thing. And, you know, maybe occasionally I might have some time for fun. That was a different thing again, and onwards throughout my life. There's a kind of segregation that goes on very, very easily in those circumstances where even if you're trying to live a life of faith, somehow it's disconnected from all the rest. It's something that is there in its own box along with the other boxes in which your other pieces of life are in. And every once in a while you take it out, weekly maybe to go to mass, daily maybe to go to prayer, to pray, but still it's something that's separate from the rest of your life in some way, right? It's parallel to it. It's something that at best you take out in order to try to apply it to life. But applying it to life already means it's something different from life itself. And so um, if that's the case, when you have that kind of dualistic way of living your faith, different from life itself, at the end, faith becomes uninteresting for life. Because your life, you live. The circumstances of your life happen to you whether you want it to or not. And if faith isn't present there in all of it, then in the end, the risk is you start to see faith as not relevant, not interesting to life. So to be interesting and relevant to life, faith has to be all of it. It has to be in all of it. Now, that's easy to say, and it's really hard to do. It took us a long time to get there. It took me a long time to get there. Um, You know, in in particular... um, Uh, For me, it was uh, when my father died almost 20 years ago. Um, And that, I could spend a whole other evening talking about that experience. But it was only in that experience of accompanying him to death that I really realized that that what was going on was that my faith wasn't really my life itself, the way that I looked at everything and lived everything. Uh, and so, you know, then I face a problem. How do, I, how do I do that then? At least I'm aware of the problem now, of this kind of fragmentation of my life into pieces where faith is only one of them. How do you overcome it? How do you acquire the kind of way of looking at your life and everything in it with the eyes and the heart of faith? How does faith become the root of the way that you live everything all human problems, all the needs you have, all the questions you have in work and in love and in politics and in friendship and your attraction to beauty and your sports and, for God's sake, even a good whiskey, right? (laughs) You can't do this by yourself is what I learned, first of all, then. As much as I, even when I realized the situation I was in, I couldn't give it to myself. I needed someone else to show me the way, to accompany me, to live it with me. You can't live faith as life unless you're living it in communion with other people who are doing the same thing. It can't be done by yourself. And the second thing is, I realized I had to be educated to do it. You can't just turn it on. You grow in this. You grow in it in particular by allowing the church, our mother in this, to educate your heart and your mind, to look at the world, to look at every aspect of your life with the eyes and the heart of of faith, through prayer, through silence, through sacramental life, through study and the life of the mind, through service to others, through living how the church calls us to live. And eventually you'll see as as you're living with others that faith really becomes the root of all of life. And then, best of all, it's super interesting because it's, it's relevant to everything that you're doing. Number three, a change of seasons. All right, so this is like my current most interesting topic to be thinking about life and the seasons that you have in life. Um, I wish I had known about this when I was younger. Um, Maybe I didn't realize how long life is then. Uh, I have a better sense of that now. But um, I realized that there are a lot of different seasons in life, and so I'd like to talk to you about two of them. Uh, professional and also in terms of relationships. But I think you could probably discover different different, um, aspects of it as well. So as my life goes on and I maneuver through the changes of my life, I've come to see that sometimes um, change is predictable. It's usually natural. 
Sometimes it's sad, but change in and of itself is not necessarily bad. Um, change can help me to grow and to become more of whom I'm called to be. If I can approach it with openness, this change can also bring me new life and new opportunities. So I have a couple of examples. Um, in terms of my professional life, I felt a lot of pressure when I graduated from UCLA to have it all figured out, to decide what I would be doing to make a difference in the world professionally for the rest of my life. And I had to do that before I turned 23. <laughs> so should I follow my love for theology and catechesis, or should I pursue social justice and use my fluent Spanish? That's kind of where I was. After agonizing, I chose development, and I found the perfect graduate school. I got in it, that was shocking. I earned my master's, and I was set for life. This is what I thought. Well, that's not how it's worked out. Uh, looking back, I would say I've probably had, so far, three distinct different careers. Uh, the first one was in microenterprise finance, in Santiago, Chile, and I worked for a Chilean nonprofit organization, had all kinds of amazing experiences. Um, I loved it. I was so happy. Uh, the second one was being a full-time mom. We came back from Chile when our money ran out. <laughs> um, I had a great job. I was getting a, paid a great Chilean job, but he had a really big law school debt. And so we came back, and I became a full-time mom. And that job lasted 16 years and had many beautiful moments and a lot of satisfaction. And the third is where I am right now, and that's teaching 7th and 8th grade kids at um, St. Pius. And I teach religion, and it's a phenomenal job. I love it. It's like the best. So the transitions between these careers, though, sometimes have been really painful. Um, sometimes they've been really difficult. Sometimes these careers have come with big uh, and steep learning curves. Bless you. Um, so and what I learn and enjoy about one career might or might not be present in the other ones. But the point I want to make is that professional life has seasons. The interests and passions um, that these seasons grew out of were within me the whole time. Um, but at different times of my life, I've been able to tap into one or another and to develop them more fully. So I didn't have to have it all figured out at 22 or at 28 or even at 44. So that's one thing I wish I had known. Well, another area of my life that's marked with seasons is friendships. And I would say this is particularly evident in my friendships with other women. There seems to be times when things just naturally change in our relationships. It could be when in our friend group suddenly a couple of us start dating people. And that's really different to lose a, to lose a friend. See how I said that? to have a friend start dating and then to experience the change in relationship. Or maybe when people uh, of our age have started getting married, that really changes friendships. Or when we start to have children. A few years ago, I saw it when my friends went back to work full time. Uh, right now, it seems that approaching the empty nest is another season. We're not going to know that for like another 11 years. <laughs> so I'm still with hanging out with young moms. <laughs> so the change in friendships has always been very hard on me. I mourn what I've lost. This change seems bad, and so I dwell on it. And I think I need to fix it. I think I need to recover the friendship the way it was. Um, but over the decades, I've come to appreciate that these changes are natural. It's like looking out the window and those fall leaves that are so beautiful, the last ones fall. 
And that is sad, but it's not bad. Growth does happen after that. New things come about after that. So I'm learning to recognize that there are uh, seasons in friendships, and this helps bring me peace um, about the change. And it also helps me to be open to whatever's going to come next. OK. Uh, number two, I've decided to call Get Real. <laughs> so often, um, when I was a lot younger, um, especially in my work and professional life, I, I thought and acted as if my vocation, my fulfillment in these areas, um, depended on me. Right? Depended uh, not just on me, but also depended on my getting the conditions just right. right? I would be happy and doing my, the thing I'm meant to do if only, and then you can fill in the blank, right? There's any number of things. If only, if only I could get a new job, if only I didn't have to work for that person, if only uh, I had more time, uh, it, it's any number of things, right? Um, but, um, uh, but implicitly, what I was doing in doing that is, was acting and thinking as if in my vocation, um, I was making my own life. I was responsible for my own destiny for my own fulfillment, that I would choose by getting the conditions just right or making the right choice what my future would be. But I had it backwards, right? Because our destiny is given to us. It's not made by us. Our lives are given. They're not made. That is so hard in this culture. Because we live in a culture where everything is about your choices are the source of your satisfaction. Right? It's not about the givenness of our reality, of our daily life. And yet, Christianity is all about that, right? God, God became man, a man to accompany us in everything that's real, right? And to affirm to us that our vocation is given to us in the reality that is in front of us every day, in every detail, not in the things that we might imagine, the illusions that we would wish for ourselves if we could make our own destiny. But in fact, our happiness lies just in living the real, living what's in front of us, not in some hypothetical construct. And what I found as I began to, to, to realize that is that, you know, Living reality is actually deeply satisfying. It doesn't betray you. It's faithful because in it is the one who is the answer to what your vocation is and the guide to what your destiny is, right? It's there. It's in these details of our lives and the reality that we face when, when we have choices to make about our future and so forth that, um, that God meets us, bends over us, comes to us, in our limits, even more than in our successes. So the most significant thing to say in front of reality is not, I wish it were something different, because then I would be happy. But merely, just say yes. Just say yes. And because of this truth, you begin to discover that everything is a way to live in Christ. And everything is the path of our vocation. Concretely, what does that look like, right? You, you have to live the present. The past is gone. The future is not yet. And yet, how often do we fail to live what's right in front of us now? The person in front of us, the decision in front of us, uh, the task in front of us. And secondly, it requires sort of a radical openness to whatever is in fact given. And the temptation is always to say, uh, no, that's not for me, right? You know? Uh, a new baby when we're already in our late 40s? Oh, no. <laughs> you know, um, that's, that's, not, that's not to me. Um, uh, so that kind of radical openness to where Christ is present in whatever is given to us in our lives at every, at every moment. 
Um, I, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to take an extra 30 seconds just to add this example too, because today, um, it's going to be hard not to get emotional. Uh, a colleague of mine at Notre Dame died today. Uh, he, he's been suffering from cancer for the last 10 months. Um, a professor of economics, amazing man. Uh, also happened to meet our oldest daughter's advisor, so we got to know him that way too, and at St. Pius uh, Parish and school and church, um, very present with his family, a family full of young kids. Five, something, anyway. Um, but the most amazing thing about this is that, uh, uh, that Tim lived all of these 10 months with that kind of radical openness and yes to what was given to him, even in those circumstances, right? Even knowing that he was dying, he embraced the cross and said, if this is what's given to me, this is what's real. And it's only in what's real that I encounter Christ. And it's only in that encounter with Christ that I, that I live my own destiny and what I'm meant for. And by doing that, he transformed everything. Everything about his illness, everything about his life, about his family, about the students who were around him, the whole university lived in sort of awe at the witness that he gave to what the meaning of his life was, which would never have been possible if he didn't just say yes to what was real in his life instead of imagining what might be different. I'm going to stop there. <clears throat> We'll cut him some slack. God is as he shows himself. This is our last one. Um, so the title of this last segment is a quote from Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI's book. That was tough to say. Introduction to Christianity. God is as he shows himself. God does not show himself in a way he is not. So I wish I had realized decades ago more fully the totality of God's love for me, the way his very being is love. So I'd like to share with you for your consideration a few of Benedict's points uh, that have affected me profoundly. Benedict examines uh, in this book the account in Exodus when Moses said to God in the burning bush, the children of Israel to whom you send me will ask who is the God who sends you? What is he called? What shall I then say to them? We are next told that God replied, I am who I am. Benedict reflects on the name God has given, I am who I am. And benefit, Benedict concludes, this is a spoiler alert, that in this name, we see that God reveals himself as a God for Israel, as a God for man. God is seen on the plane of I and you, not on the plane of the spatial. He's not anywhere in particular. He is to be found at any place where man is and where man lets himself be found by God. Benedict goes on to say, I am is as much to say I am here. I am here for you. God's presence is emphasized. His being is expounded not as being in itself, but as a being for. God is also, also constant. He's not becoming, but he is. So in the midst of becoming and passing away, he gives himself to us. He is there for us. He gives us firmness in our infirmity. So Benedict then brings this forward to how God reveals himself most fully in his son. Um, he goes on to talk about how all of chapter 17 of John's Gospels, which Benedict thinks are the heart of the whole gospel, which kind of tells me, oh, I better take a better look at those, centers around the idea of Jesus as the revealer of the name of God and thus assumes the position of the New Testament counterpart to the story of the burning bush. 
in Jesus, God has really become he who can be invoked. In him, God has entered forever into coexistence with us. The name is no longer just a word at which we clutch. It is now flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone. God is one of us. I wish I had known as a young adult how God desires me, is for me, is one with me through Christ. So if you went to Catholic school, I'm sure you learned that the source of our dignity as human beings is because we're made in the image and likeness of God. That is not not true. But what really resonates with me is that my humanity is lifted up, is dignified by God taking my form in Jesus. That shows himself to be a being for me. Okay, uh, okay first of all, that was an amazing talk, so thank you guys for coming out here. So we're going to all clap for you. Um, Paolo, you had a really, really awesome point on living in the real. Um, now, especially to a, a somewhat young guy such as myself, the idea is like, oh, I have these goals, and I want to achieve these goals, and now I have to make choices to get to those goals. But you made the very good point that you have to live in the real and that that's going to be the most fulfilling. Did you have any thoughts about how you can still try to achieve those goals and maintain ideas for those goals while still living in the real? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's a great question, and it's really critical. Um, I, because you can't, you can't, and you wouldn't want to not live with a view to the future, too. And I don't, and, you know, so it allows me to sort of clarify that that's not at all what it's about, right? I mean, of course we live with hopes, and with ideals and dreams about the future, and you have to. And in fact, you know, my first point about maintaining sort of the fullness of your desire in part is that, right? Uh, not, not to give up that. But so how do you put them together? I, I think it's that um, uh, you're, you're, what you aim for has to be read um, and, and interpreted and... and um, and revised constantly in light of what is in your life, right? You have signs in your life of, of what is given to you, what is given to you for the future too, right? So, you know, I can say I, I, I would really love to be a rocket scientist. I say that because my son is an aerospace engineer, so he is going to be a rocket scientist, okay? Um, uh, but I'm not going to be a rocket scientist, and I never was, because unlike him, I'm not good at the things that he's is good, right? Um, and so, uh, you know, you, we have gifts, we have talents, we have desires. Our desires are given to us, right? Our desires are not accidental to our, to our future. Those are real and they're present, but they're signs of a future for us. And so I think you're, we're, we're always sort of gauging the hopes that we have for ourselves in the future by being attentive to what is present and not simply imagining something that in some way is unconnected to who you are and what your life is. And, and then the second thing, and I'll stop with this, is, um, uh, is that, that openness that I mentioned to things that you might not have wished for and expected and chosen yourself, right? When I look back at 53, to especially to my professional life, I mean, all sorts of other things too, like our youngest daughter that we mentioned and things like that, but even just focusing on professional life. If I look back on the most significant turning points, the things that directed me towards the things that were most satisfying, most productive, most fruitful, most exciting to me, almost without exception, they were not things that I would have chosen for myself or not things that I planned for myself, right? Um, but I, they ended up being things important to my life because, you know, sometimes despite myself, sometimes with the, the help of my wife and my friends, uh, I was open to something that, that came, that was given, that, was, that made itself present in an unexpected way. So you plan, but you always plan conditionally, you know, with that kind of openness to what's given. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We were talking a bit about how you were saying that we really need to integrate our whole life into our faith and wondering if you could give us some tips on how to combine and not, you know, our life as it may be compartmentalized. How do we really bring that in into full, you know, how do we integrate that smoothly? What are some practical tips? And we'd love to hear from both of you, maybe some ideas on that. Yes, sir. Um, so I think a really important part, uh, along with what Paolo was saying about being open to what is put in front of you, um, I guess what I would say is to, uh, for me it's been important to stay away from a sense of formula, you know, um, a sense of, um, well, I'm really living my faith if I go to daily mass, or I'm really living my faith if I do these rosaries, or um, this sense of um, being like your faith life is an elliptical, and you're looking for those stats, and you're looking for the program over thing so you could get off. Um, <laughs> So um, I think really, for me, bringing it all together is just trying to look at the person in front of me with eyes of love and um, trying to be grateful for the life that's been given to me, grateful for the faith that I have. Um, and in those actions of trying to love and serve the people in front of me, and gratitude, kind of like just a constant interior dialogue with God, just kind of uh, constant presence. And in that, of course, rosaries and go to mass and all those things. But those things are not going to be living my life faithfully, if that makes sense. I'd just add two things to that, which I think is, is right. One of them is just um, echoing something that, that Susan said when she was first talking about role models, and that is it involves following. Um, the, you know, the Christian formula for growth and faith is following. Uh, it was from the very first time that the first two apostles met Jesus and said, where, where are you sleeping? And he said, come and see. It's all about following. And so um, it's critical that you that you look for and, and when you see a great presence, someone who lives their life more fully in a more integrated way, in a more beautiful way, however, you know, in whatever aspect that you're willing to follow, to watch, to look, to say, how, how is that life lived? Because that's what I want to. Um, and, and the second thing I would say is um, that a key word is, that I would use is, is the word experience. But I, but I have to explain what I mean by that is that you, you know, we're, we're taught so often that um, to have an experience of something is just for something to happen to you, right? Um, I, whatever, I had an experience because uh, I had experience of skiing because I went skiing in the mountains in Utah last year. I mean, um, but, but the real meaning of experience from a Christian point of view is to understand the meaning of things, not just for it to happen, but to judge what is it about, what does it mean? Um, and that takes a lot of practice, uh, and that's something that you, you you do with others. You say, you know, what what is this? What, whether it's um, you know what's happening in the political sphere or what's happening in your family life, uh, what's happening um, in in the workplace and so forth, to try to judge it, the meaning of it, and that involves getting together with people, discussing, you know, reflecting, um, because the more that you can do that, the more what happens to you doesn't just become a set of random events. Uh, it becomes a meaningful narrative that then becomes part of something whole. You, you begin to see, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense to me because this is how it fits with how I live this. And this is how I learned that, um, you know, living a Christian life also informs not just my personal intimate relationship, but also the way that I relate to my coworker and, and so forth. And then gradually you weave a, a whole cloth out of it. Um, Mr. Kroza, when you said um, that you can't really understand the attractiveness of morality until you experience it, 
I was wondering if you think there's a way to not only, once you discover that for yourself, to witness that to others, but actually to engage others so that they can um, experience that as well. You'll have an answer to this too, I'm sure. Um, I, um, I, I guess the word is witness, right? Um, uh, again, you know, we live we live in a strange world, <laughs> in a strange time, um, and Christian words have lost their meaning. They've been hollowed out. They're empty. Um, you can use the, the the language of Christianity, and it doesn't mean anything to people anymore. Um, so I think more and more every day, it's harder to communicate. That, that sort of beauty, the beauty of a Christian life through words because they're unintelligible to people. Um, so how do you communicate? You communicate it through the witness of a life lived that, that is attractive, that people see is more satisfying, is, has something more. Um, and you know, they may not understand where it comes from, um, but if they see something that they like, something that seems more full of intensity, in a good sense, I mean, you know, that, that life is lived with gusto. Who wouldn't want that, right? And, and that's what living a moral life does for you, right? It allows you to live everything with, with a greater intensity, with a greater meaning, with a greater fullness. So that's what you have to show it just by, you know, by, by your witness. You, I don't know. You have no, I, I think that's right. 